Good morning, y'all. Thanks for being with us today at our first of the Haven small groups for the year. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, I'm grateful <laughs> that we're all here together. Um, and for those of you who are online or who are watching this later, we miss you and we look forward to being with you soon. Um, so my family and I have this personal Martin's family tradition that has kind of evolved or been created and been a part of our, our um, holiday celebrations in recent years on New Year's Day. Um, once we've slept in, once we've recovered a bit from whatever our festivities were the night before, often on New Year's, not every year, just depending on what's going on, but often we eat our breakfast, we settle in on our in our pajamas on the couch, and we commence with a movie marathon on New Year's Day. A good New Year's Day movie marathon usually includes a movie series that has at least three films, four to five also acceptable uh, if, if we get going early enough. Um, we've done Star Wars in the past, not all of them, but you know, a chunk. Um, we've done some of the Harry Potter films, Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and after having a year or two off from this tradition, this year we found like all of us happened to be free on New Year's. We were all around and inspired by the recent prequel that was released and also having teens and tweens who are now in the age of like reading a series of books we decided to kick off 2024 watching the Hunger Games together. Okay, so we had a day of Hunger Games to begin the year. As you may or may not know, the Hunger Games is a dystopian story set in some sort of post-US future nation called Penem. And it's ruled by the elites in their national capital through brute force. One of the primary expressions of that force is a, a sick kind of sport in which districts around the country are forced to send teenage representatives to the capital where they battle each other to the death in an arena, all for the entertainment of the elites. This cruel practice, along with many others, are meant to subjugate the districts and keep them from rebelling. And they're maintained with military might by a set of forces deployed throughout the oppressed districts called the peacekeepers. I think I have a slide with some images. It's an ironic name, of course. The peacekeepers in the Hunger Games are some of the most violent characters imaginable, right? They're the ones who force impoverished families at gunpoint to submit their teenage children to be sacrificed. Their presentation is brutal, it's unforgiving, as they follow orders to shoot dissenters on sight or even firebomb whole communities that threaten to disturb the peace of Penem. Of course, though The Hunger Games is a fictional work, the irony it draws upon is all too real. What does it really mean to keep the peace? Peace for whom? And at what cost? In the fictional world of Panam, the peace that the peacekeepers are securing is on behalf of the privileged and powerful in the capital. It's really a suppression of conflict, giving those living in the capital to the peace to either wittingly or unwittingly continue oppressing their neighbors without any visible resistance. 
And it may have felt peaceful to them, but at what cost? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I shared a theme I've been feeling stirred, perhaps by the Spirit, to invite us into as we begin 2024. A theme I find myself pondering at the beginning of a year that looks to be one marked with challenging conflicts, both domestically and internationally. As I've been praying towards this year, the, the phrase that's been ringing in my head, perhaps the voice of the Spirit, uh, as blessed are the peacemakers. These are the words that, of course, come from Jesus himself. But what does this call of Jesus to make peace actually even mean? How might Jesus' audience have heard it? How was it different than the kind of peace enforced by the peacekeepers of the world? How have Christians understood that call in the past, for better or for worse? And what might it mean for us today in a world struggling through growing war in the Middle East, political battles at home, to follow Jesus into this call to peacemaking in 2024? I'm going to name from the outset, I don't have the answers to all the questions. I really don't. But just as we did a couple weeks ago in connection with our Epiphany story, I am going to continue inviting us over the next couple Sundays to prayerfully engage these questions, hoping that as we dialogue with one another, as we look to our sacred texts and to our history, and we pray and invite the Spirit to speak to us, we might live into the call to make peace in a world of conflict. So today I'm gonna to take some time to look briefly at both where Jesus calls his followers to making peace and also where he seems to say something that actually contradicts that call. And my hope is looking at these two seemingly contrasting sets of sayings by Jesus together is that holding them together might give us some wisdom that actually leads to deeper understanding about what he means. So both passages we're going to look at briefly are found in Matthew. They're only a few chapters from each other. Matthew's gospel, in a unique way, um, gives special attention to the ethical teachings of Jesus. Matthew really cared that his audience was shaped by how Jesus taught his followers to live. And a core part of that teaching is found in Matthew 5 to 7, what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. Though just to note, most scholars don't think of all this content as likely shared in any one sermon. Okay, it's helpful to keep in mind. It, its appearance in one sermon is more like a literary device. If Matthew is living in the era of YouTube, he might have like arranged a YouTube video, compiling excerpts from different clips, bringing them all together in something like the top 10 teachings of Jesus, right? So it's in the context of this kind of like greatest hits compilation, that we first see Jesus' invitation to make peace. And the sermon starts with this list of blessings call, uh, commonly called the Beatitudes. So we'll start by reading that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called 
the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. Okay, so here we have this list of words of blessing and consolation that seem to speak to how the divine regards folks, what God values, where God is present in a particular way. A number of these have like an inherent surprise in them. They seem to draw a contrast between multiple versions of reality, this kingdom you might say of earth and the kingdom of heaven. And in the reality shaped not by the earthly political powers, but shaped by the divine, the poor, the mourners, the meek, those hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they are the ones in possession of something sacred, something eternal, some deeper comfort and satisfaction. And in the midst of the call to be merciful, to be pure in heart, Jesus then issues this call to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God, he says. And finally, he moves from blessing the peacemakers to ending his series of blessings, speaking of persecution. The blessing that comes to those who are made to suffer for standing up for righteousness, as he says, and specifically for their association with Jesus. Now, before we think more about this passage, I want to highlight another one. It seems to stand in tension with it. And this chap this comes just five chapters later in Matthew 10, starting with verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So which is it? Is Jesus the Prince of Peace who blesses the peacemakers and calls them children of God? Or does he come not to bring peace but a sword? I think the only true answer has to be both, right? Jesus' words in Matthew invite us to affirm both statements. Yes, Jesus is indeed the Prince of Peace. But to understand that identity and to live into being ambassadors of it, into being children of God who participate in following Jesus's way and making peace around us, that means we have to understand what kind of a peace we're talking about. Because as we saw with the Hunger Games, peace can mean different things to different people, right? What was peace to the rich and powerful in the capital? in Pan Am, was violence and oppression to everyone outside of it. So perhaps it's helpful for us to remember the setting in which Jesus spoke all these words. Jesus himself was in a historical setting in which there were competing views of peace playing out in real time. So Jesus lived during this time when the whole region of Palestine was under the political control of the Roman Empire. It was a period in history that has become to be known has come to be known as the Pax Romana. That's the Latin term that's been used 
to talk about the Roman peace. Okay, this is the empire during the Pax Romana. Historians talk about the Pax Romana as a period of about 200 years that was unprecedented in terms of its lack of international war. The period is said to have begun when Augustus took the throne, which was uh, moved Rome from a republic to an empire in 27 BCE. That's two to three decades before Jesus was born. And so as you see here, um, by the time there was an original expansion of what the um, what the empire was when Augustus took the throne, he then, you know, expanded the, the uh, empire a bit. And so by the time, you know, 14 CE happens, about 50 years after he took um, the throne, that's what the empire looked, the dark orange. And then it continued to have some expansion. So at its largest size is what you have at the light orange, it says in 117 CE. So in the early years, like I said, he expanded the territory. He occupied all the regions surrounding the Mediterranean and Black Sea, including Palestine, where Jesus lived. They say one quarter of the world's population at the time is believed to have been enfolded in that empire during this period. Historians point to the benefits and cultural contributions of the Pax Romana. Less warfare meant the development of infrastructure that connected the various regions, roads were developed, common language like Greek was transmitted throughout the region. The period was considered to be a golden age of arts, literature, and technology. All of that fairly positive. One could argue the gospel would not have been communicated if it had not been for the Pax Romana. But this version of Roman peace came with a heavy price tag. It was a peace enforced by a deep culture of violence. Augustus himself came into power by participating in bloody coups in which would-be leaders killed each other, and he came out on top. And once he had the power, he branded himself throughout the empire to be a bringer of peace. That was kind of the brand of why be a part of this empire. But the peace was maintained by the sword. It was maintained by keeping slaves in their place as an important component of the imperial economic engine. It was maintained by sanctioning local provincial governors like Herod, who was over Palestine, who used violence to intimidate their own people. It was maintained by forced taxation, which extracted resources from those who lived on subsistence means throughout the empire, keeping them unable to challenge the leaders in power. And it was maintained by the legions of Roman soldiers stationed throughout the empire to brutally suppress any would-be rebels, executing them publicly in shameful ways like crucifixion in order to stoke fear in any others who might consider resisting the empire. If this sounds a bit like Penem from The Hunger Games, that's intentional, actually. The author of the trilogy, Suzanne Collins, used the ancient Roman Empire as her source of inspiration for her fictional dystopia. This was the historical moment Jesus lived in, the Pax Romana, a period without international warfare, you could say, and in that way had peace, but it was not, I believe, the peace that Jesus was calling his followers to make, right? So if it wasn't Rome's vision of peace, what was Jesus's vision of peace? 
To understand that, I think we have to look at the vision of peace that's developed in the ancient Jewish tradition that Jesus was rooted in. The vision spoken to throughout the Hebrew Bible. In contrast to Roman peace is the Jewish concept of shalom. Shalom can include that connotation of an absence of war, but its vision is more positive and expansive than that. Shalom, at its core, the root of the word denotes wholeness, completion, a sense of holistic well-being. Shalom communicates a quality of health, safety, and prosperity. Shalom is the vision the prophet Micah testified to when he felt called to proclaim on behalf of the divine, this is where things are going. This is what it should look like. And he says, he will arbitrate between many peoples. I think we have this too. And settle disputes between many distant nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not use weapons against other nations. They will no longer train for war. Each will sit under his own grapevine or under his own fig tree without any fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has decreed it. This is not a vision of fighting ending because the oppressed finally succumb which is what it is for Rome, right? This is a vision rooted in, con this is not a vision rooted in conquest and in cultivating hopelessness in the conquered. No, this vision of shalom sees neighborliness, respect for the humanity of others, true justice at its heart. And in this vision, disputes are settled nonviolently and people can live harmoniously with one another and each can have what they need, no more, no less their own vine, their own fig tree, and live without fear. There's a contemporary rabbi in Texas named Robert Kahn, and he has explained the difference between the first century Roman concept of peace and the Jewish understanding of shalom this way. One can dictate a peace, he says, but shalom is a mutual agreement. Peace is a temporary pact. Shalom is a permanent agreement. One can make a peace treaty, but shalom is the condition of peace. Peace can be negative, the absence of commotion, but shalom is positive, the presence of serenity. Peace can be partial, shalom is whole. Peace can be piecemeal. Shalom is complete. This is the kind of peace, the kind of shalom I believe Jesus is calling his followers to make. I think living into this vision of shalom is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. As I think you all know, this past Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And in part of my own reflections on Dr. King this week, I found myself reading a sermon he gave that I think reflects how these two visions of peace manifested in his time. I think they're instructive to us as we think about how they might be manifesting in ours as well. So this sermon was preached on March 18th, 1956 in the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. 
was called When Peace Becomes Obnoxious. And in the sermon, King's responding to something that's just taken place in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. A judge had recently ordered that the University of Alabama had to stop denying admission to students based on their race, right? Desegregation was being forced in Alabama. And so this brave youth, young woman named Arthur and Lucy had been accepted as the first black student there. And she had attempted to attend class, but of course she had faced fierce resistance. As a group of students, including supported by outsiders, came to the University of uh, Alabama and violently harassed her. King uh, described the situation in his sermon, talking about crosses being burned, eggs and bricks thrown at her, the mob jumping on top of her car. Um, and finally, the president and the trustee of the University of Alabama, they asked her to leave for her own safety and the safety of the university. And as King relates, the next day in the paper, uh, the, this was the headline, things are quiet in Tuscaloosa today, there is peace on the campus of the University of Alabama. But what kind of a peace was being spoken of, right? King described it this way. Mm, this is not the quote, sorry, um, but we will get to that one. It was peace that had been purchased at the price of allowing mobocracy to reign supreme over democracy. It was peace that had been purchased at the price of capitulating to the force of darkness. This is the type of peace that all men of good will hate. It's the type of peace that is obnoxious. It is the type of peace that stinks in the nostrils of the almighty God. And in this sermon, Dr. King went on to connect this obnoxious peace with Jesus's words in Matthew 10. When he confusingly said, he comes not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. For King, that doesn't negate Jesus's vision of what he calls peace in a higher sense. It doesn't negate the vision of shalom, the kingdom of God. No, when Jesus speaks this word, he hears Jesus saying, I come not to bring the peace of escapism the peace that fails to confront the real issues of life, the peace that makes for stagnant complacency, he says. For Dr. King, Jesus is calling his followers not to submit to empire, not to settle for this kind of false peace, which pacifies the strong, but reeks as evil in the nostrils of the God of justice. He is acknowledging, Jesus is acknowledging that his presence will bring conflict in order to bring justice. King doesn't believe Jesus means we should take up a literal sword or that Jesus is taking one up, but a spiritual one. And this is where the next one comes. Whenever I come, he hears Jesus saying, a conflict is precipitated between the old and the new, between justice and injustice, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. I come to declare war over injustice, King heard Jesus saying. I come to declare war on evil. Peace is not merely the absence of some negative force, war, tension, confusion, but it is the presence of some positive force, justice, goodwill, the power of the kingdom of God. In other words, peace is not Pax Romana, right? It is the shalom of the divine. King called his followers to resist this pressure to capitulate. And in the same way that Jesus encouraged his followers 
to be resourced by the divine to combat and justice and live towards a different kind of peace than Rome was proclaiming, King preached nonviolent resistance as a mode of peacemaking. Finally, he said, King said in that speech, if peace means accepting second-class citizenship, I don't want it. If peace means keeping my mouth shut in the midst of injustice and evil, I don't want it. If peace means being complacently adjusted to a deadening status quo, I don't want peace. If peace means a willingness to be exploited economically, dominated politically, humiliated and segregated, I don't want peace. So in a passive, nonviolent manner, we must revolt against this peace. It's been nearly 70 years since King preached these words. And I think they still speak prophetically to the realities happening in our time. Just in this last week, a bill was put forward in the state legislature in the state of Florida. I don't know if you guys heard about this. If it passes, it would mean that anyone who publicly accuses another person of some sort of discrimination Anyone who calls out a politician, a business owner, an educator for being racist, homophobic, transphobic, could be sued for defamation and fined $35,000 minimum. So they're trying to say, they're trying to suppress calling someone out on their racism. That could cost you $35,000. This is the same logic as the Pax Romana. It's the same logic as the University of Alabama in 1956. It's a call for peace for the privileged. Let the white people have their racism in peace, please. Right? Let the defenders of heteronormative family values have their transphobia in peace. But this is not a just peace. This is not the positive presence of the kingdom of God that King preached. It's not the shalom of Micah that Jesus sought to embody. Jesus knew his call to the world to live into that holistic, expansive, just kind of peace would cause resistance by its very presence. It would inevitably cause conflict. The call to justice would even break up family allegiances. That's why he talks about mothers and fathers turning against their children, right? How true has that word actually remained? Sadly, how many of us have had family relationships that have been ruptured in the last decade as the differences in our visions of what a peace-filled world would look like have been laid bare? Jesus knew the conflict was coming. He knew the struggle for peace would even bring persecution for those who refused to accept the Pax Romana and committed themselves to securing peace for all, particularly the marginalized. The next line after the blessing for peacemakers in the Beatitudes was the blessing on those who were persecuted for righteousness. Friends, the word righteousness here can also be translated justice. Blessed are you who make true peace, Jesus says. You are the representatives of the divine. On earth, you are the children of God. And when you are persecuted for fighting for justice, the kingdom of heaven is yours. They're connected. When you're threatened by MAGA extremists, the kingdom of heaven is yours. 
When you are defending the capital from a mob of insurrectionists, the kingdom of heaven is yours. When you are sued for calling out racism or transphobia in Florida, the kingdom of heaven is yours. When you are silenced or canceled for advocating for innocent women and children in Gaza, the kingdom of heaven is yours. When as a teacher, you are sanctioned for slipping a banned book to a trans kid who needs it, the kingdom of heaven is yours. When you're harassed, trying to attend class like Arthur and Lucy was, the kingdom of heaven is yours. When you bear the punishing weight of Pax Romana in the shape of a cross, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Rejoice, Jesus said, for you are standing in the company of prophets that have come before you. You are in the company of Elijah and Jeremiah and Micah and Martin. And yes, there you are in the company of Jesus. Friends, I believe all of us are called this year to not be peacekeepers, but to be peacemakers in the way of Jesus. Peacemakers, not peacekeepers. This may mean at times taking up the sword of ideas it might mean taking up the sword of clear prophetic words. It might mean nonviolently resisting the forces of Pax Romana in our time to expose the obnoxious false peace that King spoke of and embody the true just peace of shalom that Jesus embodied. So I want to end by speaking a hope and a blessing on all of us in this work. Friends, as we seek to be these kind of peacemakers this year, may we do so with wisdom, to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. May we keep our tongues sharp and our hearts soft. As we examine our motives, purify our own hearts, may we see God as Jesus promised. May we be among the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. And may, as Jesus promised, that thirst be satisfied. May it be. Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go into our time of conversation. God, I, I sense a groaning in my own spirit, and I imagine I'm not the only one. A groaning at the persistence of the Pax Romana among us. The groaning of a lament as we acknowledge how challenging it is. How sometimes it feels um, so deeply entrenched the forces of um, stagnant complacency that King spoke of, that keep uh, the status quo maintained, that keep hierarchy in place, that allow oppression to continue while we call it peace. God, I ask that you continue to awaken our hearts to participate, not as peacekeepers, but as peacemakers 
in that expansive vision of shalom, of a just peace? Would you be speaking to each of us about what that looks like in concrete ways this year, in conversations, in our, in our families, in our places of work, um, in, in wherever we find ourselves engaging? Where to show up with advocacy, where to show up with aid, where to embody a different vision of peace. And would you direct us to the partners in the work that we are a part of a bigger movement, much bigger than this little community here. May we hold on to that vision of shalom that comes from Micah. But not stop, not stop living into that call to make peace until we see the day that everyone can dwell under their own vine and fig tree and no one be afraid. Amen. All right, friends, so we'll take about 10 minutes um, in a couple of conversation groups. And here are some questions that you can consider. What does the shalom Jesus seemed to preach mean to you? How do you imagine it impacting your life and the world around you? Number two, do you have relationships that have been impacted by a conflict between the different visions of peace I was speaking of? And what has that impact been? What might you be up for sharing with others? And finally, what do you think a call to peacemaking might include for you right now? Any of those things we might talk about or whatever else is feeling um, relevant to you right now. Okay, so we'll take 10 minutes. We'll group, it, group up in groups of four to six or so, and, um, and then we'll continue with worship.